0: Policy has created a lot of these inequities, whether they are racial and ethnic health disparities, they're disability-related disparities, whether there's socioeconomic disparities, and so policy can fix what policy created. Welcome to the ACO Show. Today, Josh and Brian are joined by Daniel Dawes, the director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. He is a professor of health law policy, and management, and the author of the books 150 Years of Obamacare and the Political Determinants of Health. They discuss the long and challenging history of efforts in America to promote equity in health care, from the Civil War through the era of Obamacare to the present time, and why it's so important to have good data to make meaningful improvements to health inequity.
1: Hi, I'm Brian Chaglinski, Allidade's Director of Communications, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Josh Israel, and we're joined today by a very special guest, a lawyer, author, scholar, educator, and someone who's been intimately involved in the health equity, health reform, and mental health movements. Today, we're joined by the director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia, and a professor of health law, policy, and management, Daniel Dawes. Uh, Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today.
0: It's great to be with you both. Thank you, Brian.
1: Great. I was wondering if we could just kick it off by going uh, a decade back in time, uh, a little over a decade, uh, talk a little bit about the genesis of uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and kind of some of your work around that.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I know a lot of people think that we've been working on health reform here in the United States for about 100 years. But for those of us who have been in this underlying movement to advance health equity, We know that it's actually taken us 150 years to realize the Affordable Care Act. What do I mean by that? So, you know, 75 years after the founding of our constitutional republic, right, our government, there was an attempt during the Civil War to pass the nation's first and most comprehensive equity-focused health policy. That was called the Freedmen's Bureau Act. And that was, of course, in 1865 under the Abraham Lincoln administration. Um, after 75 years of trying to expand health care services or access to health care for um, enslaved individuals, Black and Indigenous and poor whites, um, the Lincoln administration was able to push that agenda. They also pushed to address the necessities of life, so to provide food and um, clothing to these newly freed people, uh, especially as well as educational opportunities, true employment opportunities, and security, right? And, and so, you know, the argument is, or I argue that this Freedmen's Bureau Act was really not only the most uh, and, and first equity-focused policy, but the first health policy addressing what we now call the social determinants of health, right? All of these factors that I just talked about. But it was such a contentious debate. It lasted two years, very much like uh, we did with the Affordable Care Act, But during that time, during the two years, um, while, of course, it was extremely contentious to provide any or to provide for the general welfare of newly freed people, it was even more contentious to include a provision to provide medical services for these individuals. And so the debate raged basically for about two years um, from 1863 to 1865. And then in 1865, President Lincoln says, you know what, in the spirit of compromise, Let's strike that provision from the bill, and let's go ahead. I'll sign this um, bill into law, and um, and he did so, right? But about four weeks after he signed that bill, the Freedmen's Bureau Act into law, he was assassinated, as we know from history. And his supporters, not wanting to squander this crisis, believed that upon reading the um, statute, that it actually did authorize them to provide help services so even though it had been struck from the law explicitly they believed that it was written in such a way that they could And this is where you saw um the proliferation of freedmen's hospitals and clinics um, around the country to provide these disparate these marginalized groups who had been locked out of our health system to get some uh some access to health care well we all know that the opponents of health equity do not sleep. And and unfortunately, after seven years of trying their very best to dismantle America's first and most comprehensive health reform law, they finally succeeded um, in in 1872. And and unfortunately, you had uh, a program that had increased access to more than half a million African-Americans in this country and countless poor whites in this country. Um. now losing that access to healthcare. It would take us 150 years later for the political stars to align uh, where we would have another bite at the apple, another opportunity to create a pretty comprehensive, a pretty inclusive and equity-focused health policy with the creation and, of course, the passage and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And so that's why uh, I start with 150 years of Obamacare. It's supposed to cause some cognitive cognitive dissonance um, within people.
1: Yeah, I had to double check my calendar because I was like, "Did was there a typo, or did I miss something here?" <laughs> it's like, yeah,
0: fascinating because how
1: much it built on the progress that was made, you know, a century and a half ago. That's right. Absolutely.
2: It it is a great title. It certainly got me thinking. And even in terms of so much of American history, you'll start to study something. You think, "Oh, this is just." Tax policy, and you really, and then you get into it and you say, Oh, turns out there's a lot about race in our tax policy. You know, you think you're learning about residential zoning for real estate, and then you find, Oh, it's about race too. And so, are you even suggesting that some of the fights about Obamacare were about race?
0: Oh, absolutely, I am. So, you know, if you go back, uh, you know, if if you want to go even further uh, back uh, into the 1600s, right. And you look at the laws that, of course, were done to hinder um, Black and indigenous populations from being able to address their social um, needs, right? From being able to address their social determinants of health. Uh, these, These policies, we know Massachusetts, uh, for, the, for your listeners who live in, in that's, that Commonwealth, we know Massachusetts was the first colony to legalize slavery. And all these other states uh, or colonies at the time, you know, New York, Connecticut, et cetera, followed suit after the business interests really pushed these policymakers to create policies that would um, not only legalize uh, slavery and, and, and maintain or, or, or continue their business model, but they went even further. And they went further by then creating additional policies that explicitly prohibited these um, individuals from being able to earn their own money, uh, from being able to raise their own food, from being able to learn, to read and write, from being educated, um, from being able to move and socialize with one another. They were prohibited by law, uh, essentially, um, from moving beyond a one-mile radius of the plantation, right? We know movement is key to health. So there are all of these laws that were then promulgated at that point. And um, and and and, and uh, you could see how those were recycled from one generation to the next. So it's been quite a, an incredible history um, to see how that's worked uh, from the 1600s all the way up until today. And, and as you flesh it back, as you peel back that onion, you realize that undergirding these policies are basically, you know, this racist agenda. Right. And and I talk about that even in my second book where I talk about political determinants of health. I don't know if you want to go there yet, but um, that really shows how all of these pieces, these levers, policy levers come together and how they've been undergirded um, by racism, sexism, ableism um, and the like. Yeah, I,
1: I feel like uh, your your books are really great and your perspective is fascinating because I feel like there's been a lot written about the role of of legislators and elected and appointed policymakers uh, in, in crafting health reform legislation and kind of moving forward on that. But your perspective specifically on kind of the role of advocacy groups and creating a movement outside that helps to nudge policymakers and helps to inform them uh, is really fascinating because it it shows that the policy levers are shifted by more than just the actors who are elected and appointed, that there's there are broader uh, uh, parties at play. Um I was wondering if you could uh, kind of illuminate for some of our audience kind of the role that advocacy groups play um, in crafting federal legislation and and helping move uh, policy forward,
0: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I'll, I'll stick with um, the Affordable Care Act for a moment, right, and, and talk about the work that we had done. So, you know, during that time, I, I had the great privilege of working on the Senate uh, Health Committee, Health Education, Labor and Pensions for Senator Ted Kennedy. And, um, and as you all know, he had been, I mean, a champion for health reform uh, in this country and wanted to really stretch that umbrella of inclusivity as much as he can or could um, during his tenure. So, you know, during our efforts to, to push for uh, policies that um, would enable those with disabilities, right? Uh, from being able to access um, uh, health services uh, to those with uh, mental illness and substance use disorders and the like. You, you understand the power of advocacy in affecting these changes you know, in policy, right? Because my, my argument is that policy has created a lot of these inequities, right? whether it, they are racial and ethnic health disparities, their disability related disparities, whether there's socioeconomic uh, disparities, you name it, right? Policy has created many of these and perpetuated and exacerbated uh, many of these inequities. And and so, you know, policy can fix what policy created and perpetuated, right? Over time. So with with advocates, you know, I think we recognize that and When we were crafting the Affordable Care Act, you heard me mention being a part of that underlying health equity movement that has been working uh, to address um, the needs of our most marginalized groups, right? And so during that moment, a group of us, I actually created a working group, the National Working Group on Health Disparities and Health Reform. We worked, um, we were actually created once um, the former first lady, uh, Rosalind Carter, um, had convened a group of mental uh, health champions. So, you know, I'm a huge mental health champion and um, have been pushing for mental health reform in this country. Well, she invited a group of us to Atlanta. I was living in D.C. at the time. And we said, sure, let's go. And when we met with her, she had this sense of urgency, right, about her. Um, and I, quite, I didn't quite understand because I wasn't around in the um, 1970s when she was pushing, <laughs> uh, you know, her mental health. Ah, uh, Systems Act. But during that uh, meeting, she charged us with making sure that when President Obama, or President-elect uh, Obama, um, started moving his legislative agenda for health reform, that we needed to make sure that mental health, children's mental health in particular, um, was also prioritized. And so we strategized and we thought about, okay, here's what you all had done in the 1970s, right? For four years, she and President Carter. Um, had used their capital, their political capital, to get mental health reform passed after 125 years from the time that the great leaders like Dorothea Dix had been pushing our federal government to pass a comprehensive mental health reform law. So 125 years from that time, they finally get the specs of a bill introduced, and they work for four years right, to, to get the advocates pushing externally and And then of course the champions internally to get this bill passed, they do so, but it's done what a month before the 1980 elections. And in 1980, who won that election? President Ronald Reagan, right? And his administration went about before uh, Carter's administration could implement much of that mental health reform. They tried as as desperately as they could within the last few months of the administration, but they, they couldn't implement it all obviously. And when the Reagan administration came in, they went about immediately dismantling much of that um, mental health reform law and prohibiting further implementation of it. And so, you know, she was heartbroken. And and a lot of mental health reformers uh, at that point were, were, you know, just really upset about that episode. And so that's where that sense of urgency was coming from. And she challenged us to make sure that we understood, we grasped, You know this moment in time that we've been handed for mental health equity, if you will, right? To make sure that children, in particular, had access to the mental health services that they needed. That we would uh, fight to, of course, ensure that people recognize that mental health was critical to our systemic health, and that we needed to really fight for greater parity. And so um, we, you know, took her her guidance and her guidance, her words of wisdom, and we went about creating this working group that had initially 35 national organizations fighting for mental health equity. But we recognized early on that we were being ignored because you know mental health is still so stigmatized, right? People didn't see that as a priority in the larger health reform debates as such. And so we had to grow the group um, because we didn't have a political action committee. You know, we're nonprofits, uh we're community-based organizations fighting for the change, but we had to show power in numbers. And so we grew, and under the umbrella, uh, our North Star of health equity, we grew and included provider groups, the payers, the consumers, you name it, uh, groups representing civil rights and those representing older adults, those representing LGBTQ individuals, people with disabilities, um, rural individuals. It was such an incredible... Uh, and powerful group of folks who had never before come together like they did in this fashion, right? Faith-based groups, et cetera. So together, we developed our specs, we really decided things by consensus, right? And, um, And we served as that external vetting group for the Congress and for the White House. So anything health equity had to have been vetted by our group. Congress knew that once they were vetted, they knew that they would have at least a sign-on letter of 300 organizations backing those provisions. So through the power of collaboration, we were able to include 62 provisions in the Affordable Care Act addressing health inequities among these vulnerable populations. And it was very exciting, looking at bolstering the intersection of quality and value-based care, Right, these delivery and payment system reforms and getting these provider groups and payers to pay greater attention and dedicate the resources to address these intersections. The same thing with access and coverage and so forth. So we're very pleased with the outcome of that advocacy group, but it does show how critically important it is to have a seat at that table and to continue to engage in the process from beginning all the way until the present. I I can't even say there's ever an end to the advocacy process, but you must always engage. So that's really how we we operate it.
2: Our company uh, has a commitment to health equity. And the way we, one of the ways we have chosen to really focus on that is to bring down blood pressure among the Black Americans that we right. treat. You know, there's there's huge differences um, uh, in those populations and, you know, worse health outcomes. That's right. So what, what else would you suggest? We're a company that helps uh, primary care providers set up accountable care organizations. and um, and run them. What else would you suggest as some meaningful health equity targets that companies that support PCPs or that PCPs could realistically take on that would make a difference?
0: Yeah, oh my gosh, what a great question. and And so let me say that I know we could go on and on and on about recommendations, but you know, I think one that I would start with is data because if there is no data, they say there is no problem, right? We, we need greater data. We need to, to really leverage the power of data so that we can effect those changes or create those programs, those solutions that these communities desperately need. We see tremendous gaps in the data from the data set. So I would you know, really push you all, based on my experience, you know, I have been you know, working with other leaders to get them, when we talk about the quality payment program, for instance, right QPP, uh, you look at these other value-based cares, ACOs and the like, You know, it has always been a challenge to get providers to include the collection of various factors, right? So race and ethnicity was one early on, folks didn't wanna to touch that, but then we have been trying to push for greater prioritization of equity. We believe that providers who care enough about these issues and have been working diligently to create programs and, and solutions to elevate health equity should be rewarded, right? They should be incentivized. And so that has been an uphill battle for many of us. And quite frankly, this is coming from 2012 especially. It wasn't as much during the ACA negotiations in 2009 to 2010, but it was in 2012 when uh, health affairs had actually done a special issue on the Affordable Care Act. And they had folks really reacting to different titles of the law. And a lot of them, you know, were praising the ACA for doing a remarkable job in taking this equity lens. But there was one article in particular that, that grabbed my attention, and I think grabbed the attention of others, that dealing with the intersection of quality and value-based care and equity, because, you know, that to me is the unfinished business of healthcare. And, and what the author said during that time, and I believe they were from RAND, was that Unless we get this right, there's been no movement by CMS, right? And by providers in this space. Unless we get that done, right? And achieve that, we're really going to make little progress in checking these health inequities in healthcare. So I would say that taking that lens, um, the data, taking the equity lens uh, to the quality and value based care uh, work that you all are doing, to the ACO work, et cetera. That is so critical because we know that studies have shown that when you improve the quality of care, it actually leads to increasing the disparities of care, right? It doesn't do the opposite of reducing disparities. So what are we doing wrong there? What can we do differently? As you all develop your your systems, your programs... Uh, we talk about AI, we talk about algorithmic biases. Uh, we know that, you know, it is always raining biases in this, in this country, in our society at large. And so as we are developing, we know that oftentimes you've read these peer-reviewed journal articles, the studies showing how many of these programs have actually ended up hurting African-American patients, right, and other uh, minoritized patients. So what can we do differently as we are building these, these uh, data platforms or we're building these programs, software programs and so forth, how can we ensure that they don't do harm but actually do quite the opposite? So they benefit all groups as best as we can so that all groups stand a fair chance of reaching their optimal level of health.
1: And I love I love that focus on uh, being very deliberate in how you implement these programs and how you create new ones and, and realizing that like you said, our our system rains down biases in so many different ways. And unless you're thinking deliberately about how to navigate that, it can really overwhelm any program or progress that that you're trying to make. Um, I'd love to take, uh, for our last question, kind of bring it home to you and where you are right now. And if if you could tell us a little bit about your work at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute and uh, what you guys have been doing and and how you're uh, pushing for health equity uh, across the system there.
0: Absolutely. I'd love to. So, you know, the Satchel of Leadership Institute was founded by um, David Satchel, who was our 16th U.S. Surgeon General under President Clinton. He spent about a year with the George W. Bush administration as well. And, you know, while he was Surgeon General, he pushed policies, uh, these underrated uh, issues in policy, uh, trying to 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 elevate uh, and, and get greater attention for them. So you're talking about mental health, right? We just talked about how stigmatized that was. Uh, mental health, he was the first Surgeon General pushing that one. Same thing with sexual health, oral health, racism, taking an anti-racism lens to the work uh, during that time. Well, now that you know he basically finished his tenure as Surgeon General, he came back to Atlanta and founded the Satcher Health Leadership Institute to really bolster the, the, the leadership in this movement in terms of advancing health equity. And, um, and about two years ago, he uh, decided to retire and he passed the baton on to me. And I have taken that uh, and uh, will continue to, to move and use the institute to move that needle of health equity further than we've been able to realize today. So, so what are we focused on? We are all about, our great vision is, is being that transformative force for health equity, both domestically and globally. And we don't want to just merely nibble around the edges of the problem of health inequities in this country and in other countries, but, but we want to create those actionable solutions. We want to create systemic change. We want to be able to create the type of programs that will help us chip away at these concretized inequities. And so today, we are actually working on something I'm really excited about with the um, Uh, Google, with CDC Foundation, with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and Gilead Sciences, um, and the Annie E. Casey Foundation. And it's to create the nation's first health equity tracker. This tracker, we hope, will not only track inequities for years to come, right, COVID-related inequities, but the chronic diseases. You know, Josh mentioned blood pressure, right? So we know when you think about these issues of uh, blood pressure, heart disease, asthma, diabetes, sickle cell anemia, HIV AIDS, lupus, breast cancer, you name it, right? They strike disproportionately within communities of color and within other, of course, other minoritized communities. So what can we do to track these over time? And then we want to also track the social determinants of health. So we're going to look at various social factors from housing to health insurance coverage and the like, overlay that with that data. And then, of course, we have a team of legal epidemiologists who are working on what we call our political determinants of health data. So we want to track jurisdictional policies to see which ones have been mitigating inequities, right? In various jurisdictions and which ones have been exacerbating inequities. And um, perhaps there are lessons we can learn from from this uh, tracker that uh, policymakers, policy influencers will be able to leverage to ensure that as they move forward, they can create the type of policies, the type of programs that will benefit all communities. So we are pretty excited about that one. I'm also leading a $40 million grant from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services that is creating a national COVID-19 resiliency network. We have 300 national partners uh, working with us, um, from the American Medical Association to the National Association of Community Health Centers and community health workers, you name it, such an incredible group of partners that are committed to going out into communities, whether it is tribal communities, uh, all the way to the U.S. territories, right, which have predominantly uh, communities of color, and ensuring that uh, we are helping to mitigate the impact of COVID-19. And then beyond that, making sure that we can help these communities thrive so that uh, they all can reach their optimal level of health and their full potential. So I'm pretty excited about those two.
2: Well, Daniel Dawes, executive director of the Satcher Health Leadership Institute at the Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta and the author of the books, 150 Years of Obamacare and the Political Determinants of Health. Thanks for the conversation. Thanks for helping us see these issues a little bit more clearly.
0: My pleasure. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Brian. Much appreciated.
2: This episode of the ACO Show was produced by Brittany Barnes and Hannah Posner. Our theme music is by Donna Korn. You can find previous episodes on our website, Alladay.com, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
1: ACO Show